people seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your son Jesus, who calls us to follow him. And yet, Father, we know that there are certain things that keep us from going where he goes, that keep us from following Christ. We know primarily this is the sin of unbelief. We ask, Father, not just that you would dispel doubts about the person and work of Jesus, but, Father, that you would build up our faith so that all those who trust in Christ may believe that he is the Christ, the one who came to save us. From our sins. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name and amen. Amen. You may be seated. When my kids were little, they always wanted to go to work with me. Maybe you've had that experience. You wanted to go with your father to work. You wanted to be with your father. You wanted to be with him and see what he was doing and be a part of it. And I remember one of my young sons took this to the extreme. I uh, owned a landscaping company, and it was often in the, in the wintertime, it would be fairly cold out, so I'd start my truck, get it all warmed up. It's a diesel, so it takes a while to get it warmed up before I would leave. And then I would come inside and have my breakfast with the family, and then I would say my goodbyes and leave. And as I was doing this this, this morning, I went through my normal routine, and then I got in my truck and and drove off. And somehow, in the middle of that period of time between breakfast, one of my young sons had crept into the back of my trailer, which is a flatbed trailer with all my mowers on it, and I had a standing mower. And he positioned himself on that standing mower. Now, fortunately for me, my first stop was the gas station, and I didn't have to go on any main roads to get there. So I I didn't go over 10 or 15 miles an hour. But you can imagine my surprise when I pull up to the gas station and I go out to gas up my mower, and there is my three- or four-year-old son gripping onto the mower for dear life. And and he just had this look, just the kind of mischievous, you know, little twinkle in his eyes, and, and he didn't say a word. He didn't have to. And I just said, son, go get in the truck. We'll take you back to mom. It was fortunately because in God's providence, I went there before I got on the highway and went to my job. And you can imagine going 65 on the highway and 
gripping onto the back. But he wanted to be with me. There was nothing that could keep him from following me, from going where I was going, right? And it's, uh, unfortunately, sadly, that was not the case in Jesus' story. He came to his own people, but his own people rejected him. They didn't want to be with him. And their rejection of him revolved around questions about his identity. They doubted that he was who he said he was. For this, Jesus prohibits them from going where he is going. And he condemns them to die in their sins. And of course, times have changed very little. And the same things that kept people from following Jesus still prevent us today. Unbelief. For if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, or that he is sent by the Father, you will not go where he goes. But that is not the case for everyone. Some believe that Jesus is the Christ, sent by the Father to save the world from sin. And by looking at the response of the Jews, we learn about what keeps us from following Christ. Both of them stem from unbelief. One about his office or his person, the work of Christ, and the other is of his mission. What keeps you from going where Jesus goes? That's a good question that we should be asking ourselves. And of course, in our text, Jesus shows us that it's doubts about his person and doubts about his work that keep us from following Jesus. Now, the by familiar challenge of the skepticism of the Jews and the crowds, it begins to escalate in our text, and Jesus levels this devastating judgment. You will die in your sin. And where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 21, sin in that instance is in the singular. Sin, one, sin. We know that sin is the sin of unbelief. They sarcastically mock him, trying to understand his meaning. What is he going to kill himself? Which prompts a terse discussion about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. The irony is that they have no idea where Jesus is going. Let alone the ability to go with him there, to accompany him, to follow him. But paradoxically, the way to where Jesus is going is through death. And others will go where he is, but only if they believe Jesus is the Christ sent by the Father to save the world from sin. So we're going to look at this text under two headings uh, and asking the question, what keeps you from going where Jesus goes? The first is doubts about his person. In response to their mockingly sarcastic retort about not even wanting to follow Jesus if it involved suicide, Jesus responds with a contrast. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Verse 23. Jesus is not talking about spiritual versus material. He is talking about the realm where God is obeyed as Lord, heaven, And the realm set in opposition to the rule and reign of God. He's saying, you don't recognize me because I'm not from around here. But the here is not just a different location in Israel, but is in heaven above. 
Now, this contrast serves to further distance Jesus from them as a judge. One who speaks authoritatively on matters that they don't yet understand because they have not been where Jesus has been or heard what he's heard. Jesus then begins to double down on his indictment against them. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. Now notice the singular sin is now turned into sins, and rightly so, because unbelief is the root from which a whole host of other sins proceeds. Here we see what really separates above from below. It's the absence or the presence of belief in Jesus. The below, the world, is marked by its unbelief. They will be judged for that by dying in their sins. But even this judgment is qualified by an unless. For those who believe are brought out of this sentence of death and therefore have access to go with Jesus where he is going. But what is the nature of this faith? In the Greek, there is no he after I am in verse, uh, verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now that unless is port and important. But in the Greek, there is no he that's supplied. And that's why the question immediately comes, who are you? He's saying, unless you believe that I am, you cannot go where I am going. Well, who are you? And essentially, he's saying, unless you believe that I am, in the double meaning, he's using an expression that's emphatic, And it's an inviting a comparison between Jesus and Yahweh, as we saw just in our reading of Isaiah 45. And we've read the past three weeks from Isaiah in these servant songs. As we noticed, Jesus' testimony last week about himself is self-authenticating. He doesn't need anyone to bear witness because he is God. Who could get behind God and declare that he is God? No one. No one is in that position to put God in the dock and judge him to be truthful. His own word is verified by himself. When God had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. And in Isaiah, Yahweh, the great I Am, speaks and directs his servant who will redeem Israel from her sin. Now this servant in Isaiah is a unique person, distinct from Yahweh, yet also one with Yahweh. And John, aware of this, makes this explicit in John 1.1, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There are two distinct persons, but they're not separate. They're one. Calvin says some of the ancient writers have deduced from this passage the divine essence of Christ. But that is a mistake, for he speaks of his office towards us. So we may restate Jesus' response this way. Unless you believe that I am he, that I am the Christ, the one the scriptures promised, then you will die in your sins. 
and accepting that Jesus is the Christ was exactly what the Jews were not prepared to do. And it's worth going over some of the things Jesus has done that bear witness, that give testimony that He is the Christ. He turned water into wine as a king in John chapter 2. He cleansed the temple as a priest in John chapter 2. He talks to a Samaritan woman and tells her all that she has done as a prophet in John 4. He healed the authority's son as a prophet in John 4. Or he heals the lame man on the Sabbath as a prophet in John 5. He feeds 5,000 with meager rations as a king in John 6. He walks on water. In John 6, he claims to be the water of life and the light of life, and he offers himself to those who have faith in John 7 and 8. Jesus, as a prophet, priest, and king, does things only God could do, all of which bear witness as signs that he is the Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world. Much of what Jesus does maps well onto Isaiah 42. Listen to this description of the servant in Isaiah's servant songs. He says in verse 1, Behold, my servant, and this is God is speaking, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. The problem was, what did it mean that he would bring forth justice? See, if as the Pharisees envisioned, the the Christ would initiate sweeping reforms that would cleanse Israel from all of the wicked and would reward the righteous and that would usher in the resurrection, the latter days. Or, as conceived by the zealots, they envisioned Him freeing them from Roman oppression by establishing God's kingdom here on earth and conquering all their enemies. And it seemed like there were as many ideas of who the Christ would be and what he would do as there were groups in Israel. But Jesus tells them how they would know that he is the Christ. Notice in verse 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. As throughout the Gospel of John, this lifting up has a double meaning. It refers to, of course, Jesus' impending death on the cross. And there he is literally lifted up from the earth in a gruesome and agonizing death. But in the most astounding and paradoxical way, it's also his exaltation to glory. Unwittingly, the enemy thought that they were killing the Son of God, whereas the Jews thought that they were getting rid of an upstart Messiah wannabe. And the Romans thought they were averting a riot. But God was actually triumphing over them all. And the Jews, Jesus tells the Jews that when this happens, when he is lifted up on the cross, then they will know that he is I am, 
Matthew records this in Matthew 27, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. You see, when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, that was confirmation that everything he said about his person, about himself being the Christ, was made clear to them. And although without faith it was impossible to see, Jesus' death confirms that he was the Christ. It is worth saying again what I've said many times before throughout this series on John. Jesus will perennially resist being put upon by the crowds. They have their own designs for him. They want Jesus to be this kind of Christ. This group wants him to be that kind of Christ. And Jesus says, I'm neither. We are not immune from having our own designs for the Christ. But unlike first century misconceptions of the Christ, we often end up with a Christless Christianity. We just remove him as inconvenient from the equation altogether. I think the sociologist Christian Smith has has shown that the dominant religion in America, especially among boomers, is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Its, Its creed goes something like this. I believe in a creator God who orders and watches over life on earth. I believe that God wants people to be good, to act nice to one another. That's the moralistic tenet. I believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic tenet. I believe that God is not involved in my life except when I need God to solve a problem. And I believe that good people go to heaven. That is our modern creed. And the moralistic therapeutic deism is Christless Christianity. It makes Christ irrelevant. God exists for me and is always there when I need him with no reference to Christ. And of course, this is a much more approachable God since he's made in our image. When you sub uh, moralistic therapeutic deism for Christ, it's not just a Christless Christianity that you get in the church. You also get a Christless public square. You know, one built on neutrality. A public square where everyone, of course, except Christians, bring their gods. But somehow we have been convinced to leave ours at home. That's if you have... That's if you don't have a Christless home as well, in which case Christ is given the greatest privilege of ruling over exactly one hour and a half on Sunday morning. And if you do really good about thinking pious thoughts and you sit down, stand up, and you lift your hands when you're supposed to, then you can go home and you can feel good with warm feelings about how well you did at making Christ Lord of that one hour. But Jesus is the Christ. We may not have the same troubles over Jesus as those in the first century, but I dare say we are just as clever at coming up with our own. But it's not just doubt about his person that will keep you from following Jesus, keep you from going where he goes. 
It's also a doubt about his work, about the work that he came to accomplish. Jesus leaves his statement, unless you believe I am, ambiguous enough to prompt the Jews to ask, who are you? They're not yet incensed by his identifying himself with Yahweh, the great I am, as they will be at the end of chapter 8. There, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, they want to kill him. But now they're still just confused. And you can tell that Jesus is getting a little frustrated with them. He says, look, I am not making any new claims. I have been, I have been consistent from the very beginning. Everything I've said from the beginning, I continue to say, and it's the truth. I state merely what I've told you, that I am He. And we should take beginning in two ways. From the beginning of His ministry here on earth, but even further back than that, from the beginning of creation, since in the beginning was the Word. John intends us to read both of those here. Then Jesus makes explicit what he implied with that claim in verse 29. He says, He who sent me is with me. The Father is with him. We have become so familiar with this expression since Jesus uses it so much to describe his Father. It almost becomes a proper noun like his name is he who sent me. What we notice is that God the Father is sending His Son, and He gave Him work to do. Here Jesus singles out two things the Father sent Him to do, to judge and to speak. But on further examination, we realize that these are very closely related so that we can say that Jesus was sent by the Father to declare His will concerning salvation. We have already noted how Jesus levels judgment against the Jews for their unbelief. Unless you believe, you will die in your sins. Jesus is the righteous judge. And He judges justly because He judges on the Father's behalf. If, you'll, if we were good readers, we remember from John five thirty, He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And again, as we just looked at a few a week ago, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. Now as this text makes perfectly clear, it's not sin in the abstract that God came to judge but the particular sin of rejecting Him as the Christ, the sin of unbelief. I don't think it's a stretch to trace all sins back to unbelief. Even if pride is a base sin, pride led our first parents to sin through unbelief. They doubted the goodness and the Word of God. The truth is, when we are all presented before the throne of God on the Day of Judgment, when the books are open and the sentence is read, it won't be fraud. It won't be our sexual immorality or greed or murder that brings the final verdict. It will be whether or not you are washed in the blood of the Lamb. It will depend solely upon you being clothed in the righteousness of Christ or not. Faith will be the operative dividing line that separates 
the sheep from the goats. Whether you follow the Son in the light and so receive life, or whether you stayed in the dark preferring your sin and so will receive the just condemnation and die in your sins. And it was that message that Jesus came preaching. He came to declare the Father's will for salvation, which included confirming those who were blind and hardening them in their sin while also giving sight to others and liberating them from sin. Everywhere Jesus went, the benefits of the new creation followed as foreshadows of that hope that was to come. Because Jesus did nothing of his own authority, but he speaks just as the Father taught him. Verse 28. But the work of Christ is not exhausted by judging and speaking. For the ultimate reason the Father sent the Son was to be the remedy. Not only did He condemn sin, but He, when He was lifted up on the cross, He bore our condemnation. Paul says in Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, when Christ died on the cross for you, He took the judgment that you deserved so that you could not only have freedom from sin, but a reward that you could never, ever earn. So that God would be just and the justifier. The judgment for your sin fell on the only righteous man able to bear condemnation of death and overcome it. And arguably the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached was, was not a sermon at all, but a life offered in place of another. For nothing declared the Father's will more clearly than the Son dying in your place. And that revealed not only how seriously God takes sin, that he was willing to put his own son to death. But also how great his love is for sinners. That he was willing to put his son to death. This is no cheap grace. This is costly grace that his son paid with his life. Why? Because Jesus always does the things that are pleasing to the father. Verse 29. The Jews had no room in their theology for a dying king, for a crucified Savior. Not only did they doubt Jesus was the Christ, but they also doubted the work he came to accomplish. If he would not institute sweeping theological reforms that would cleanse Israel, nor put down the Roman rule and lead them to victory, then he was not the Christ they were looking for. Dying is losing and they wanted to win but even if they should have been able to understand clearly what jesus is doing since of course since moses they had and before that with adam they had the sacrificial system which there pointed to a substitute unbelief often hardens you to what's right in front of you it's not that just, just the Jews who had trouble with the work Jesus came to do. 
Secular humanism has no way to account for self-sacrifice. In an article in Men's Health magazine, one author recounts the story that some of you may know of Arland Williams. And he tries to make sense of this man's actions. Arland Williams was one of six who freed themselves from the wreckage of Air Florida Flight 90 that had crashed into the freezing waters of the Potomac in Washington, D.C. on January 13, 1982. The, the ice in the river made it impossible for the boat crews to get out to these six survivors. And the weather was bad enough to bring down a plane, so a rescue chopper seemed out of the question. But finally, after other unsuccessful attempts were made, and after they had been in the water for 20 minutes, a police chopper did appear and dropped a life ring right on one victim, lifting him to safety. Then the author of this Men's Health article, written much later, said things started to get strange. He said, quote, The next person to receive the ring handed it over to someone else. And the chopper lofted her to safety, and then it wheeled back, and the man gave away the ring again and again. He gave it away when he knew it was his last chance to live. He must have known because when the chopper thundered back seconds later, he was gone. The man in the water had vanished beneath the ice. The author of this article, he just cannot make sense of this kind of sacrifice, especially for someone you don't even know. He says, who was this man? But far more perplexing is, Why was he? Why would anyone put the lives of strangers ahead of his own? He couldn't even see the faces of the people he was saving because they were on the opposite side of the wreckage. Yet he made a sacrifice for them that their best friends might have refused. And as the author continues to wrestle with the why behind sacrifice, self-sacrifice, he realizes that his Darwinian worldview cannot account for heroes. It made sense to protect your children, but if the survival of the fittest is our pre-programmed way of operating, sacrificing your life for someone in need, someone weaker, a potential rival, makes no sense in an evolutionary worldview. And the poor author continues to ramble on, surveying the wreckage left behind in Arlen's life because of his absence, the premature death of his father, the quiet grief of his mother at the early death of of his own son at 37 years old, and and a daughter with a gaping hole in her heart from never reconciling with her father after he divorced their mother. The author ends with this hopeless statement. He says, quote, Today there's also an Arlen D. Williams Jr. bridge in Washington, D.C., and an Arlen D. Williams Jr. elementary school in Mattoon, Illinois, and an Arlen D. Williams Jr. endowed professorship of heroism at the Citadel. There's an Arlen Williams folk song and a made-for-TV movie. There's even an Arlen Williams shrine created by a woman in Japan. But as Darwin predicted, there is no Arlen William IV. You 
See, the Jews had no place for a dying Christ, but modern man struggles with the same existential crisis when he considers self-sacrifice. The Jews mocked Jesus that if what he meant by going where they could not go was suicide, then absolutely they would not follow him. But it turned out that what he meant was that he would willingly give up himself to death so that he could rescue dying sinners from the fires of judgment. There may have even been some of that same crowd there not six months later when they hung Jesus on a tree and he gave his life a ransom for his chosen people. You see, doubt will keep you from following Christ. It will keep you from going where he goes. Doubt in his person and work. But the flip side to all that doubt is faith. Trusting in Jesus and believing that he is the Christ, the one who has sent by the Father to declare the Father's will for salvation. If you believe that, placing your trust in his perfect person and his finished work on the cross, then, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you will follow Christ. You will go where he is going and you will have eternal life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we know that in the dark recesses of our own hearts, we battle daily unbelief and doubts. And sometimes these don't manifest themselves as doubts about who Christ is, but sometimes they're doubts about whether or not Christ accomplished his work on our behalf, whether we are included in those promises. Sometimes we allow doubts to keep us from going where Jesus goes, to keep us from following him, even if it means suffering, even suffering to the point of death. Father, we ask that you would strengthen our faith and deepen our trust in Christ, in his person and in his work, so that in our own trials we may bear up under temptation strong in our faith, pursuing Christ, following him where he goes. We pray that you would guard and keep us from unbelief and doubt. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen.